Hello, nerds, friends, librarians, and all you ilk. Welcome to episode 21 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. We had fun today. We did. We had another kind of departure from form, and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. we kind of intended to discuss more, but we ended up basically just having a giant mind grape segment. Mm -hmm. A cluster of mind grapes, if you will. <laughs> no, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> So as you can tell by the multivarious laughter, we do have several guests on the show today. We just kind of segued a Saturday brunch straight into a podcast, mm -hmm. which we was... We thought we had all these really interesting, articulate people around us, and it's early enough in the day that they're not too drunk yet, so <laughs> why not have them all talk about it? <laughs> so a few of the guests you may recognize from previous shows, they are our friends. I think we only have one that's brand, brand new, and that is our wonderful friend, Adina Bronze. Hello. Yes. <laughs> My first podcast. Very yeah. exciting. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. So uh, we're doing some hidden gems in our mind grapes this week. So hopefully yeah, everyone will get uh, something new on their bookshelves. Yeah. But so we think that you should. Without further ado, let's get this one started. I'm Ali Sullivan, and if you lose sight of one dream, replace it with another. I'm Michael Wynn, and I sing with nihilistic witticism, disciplining signs with trifling gimmicks. I'm Melanie Cassidy, and I'm a punk-ass book jockey. I'm Adina Bronze, and I'm off to the morning town to find my wings. I'm John Newell, and I've seen all I care to see and heard rather more. I'm Sam Mills, and I, madam, I made radio, so I dared. Am I mad? Am I? <laughs> So this week we've got kind of a mega episode. We've got a lot of people here. Yeah. <laughs> so we're doing kind of a mega mind grapes, but we're also going to be adding a bit of a twist. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of our hidden gems of media, uh, sort of a theme that's going to run through today's mind grapes. And uh, we're going to sort of talk about things that we like that uh, maybe not unnecessarily everybody's heard of. Yeah, it makes sense. You're supposed to be able to come to your librarian to find out about hidden gems, right? Or find <laughs> the hidden gems you're looking for. So mm -hmm. we're going to talk about some of ours. All right. So who wants to start? Anyone? Don't you want to introduce us? We'll introduce you in the intro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. We got you covered. <laughs> They'll have heard it by I now. guess that yeah. makes sense. All right. Why don't, why don't, why don't you start? Sure, I can start. Uh, well, uh, my my hidden gem is actually going to be a video game. I think most people are going to be talking about books, but I'm going to talk about one of my favorite games of all time. And it's one of those games where I feel like nobody else has played it. It's uh, It originated as a Dreamcast Japanese role-playing game. And I actually had it for Dreamcast, but they did release it for GameCube as well a few years later. It is a game called Skies of Arcadia in which you play as um, as sky pirates, and it's amazing. Oh my <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of your very traditional JRPG in that, you know, you it's it's got a really great story. It's one of these ones that takes like 50 to 60 hours to play through properly, so it's a really long game. And uh, yeah, so it's the kind of thing, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of flying around. It's kind of similar to Wind Waker in some ways in that there's a lot of kind of moving from place to place and a lot of stuff that happens. And um, it's just such an amazing game. I, I really, really love it. Uh, Is it sort of like a combo of like 
puzzles and combat and all kinds puzzles of and like combat that. and uh, it's all um it's it's a jrpg so it's turn-based combat so instead of like mm. you come up to the villain and you hit it it's like you come up to the villain it goes like the screen and then like you it's just turn-based so <laughs> so there's like a strategic element to it you really like turn-based i fighting. do love turn-based yeah. fighting. i find them so stressful i, I, I love turn-based fighting with, i i kind of like just just go in and start hacking and slashing <laughs> yeah i'm not a hack slash kind of gal but like the only thing I can think of is when Emily tried to make me play Mario Party with her. <laughs> the turn-based nature of that drove me crazy. Drives me back. Yeah. 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 So is this a single-player game? It's a single-player, yeah, and it's it's uh, and the the fun thing I think the fun thing about the turn-based turn-based in this is it's kind of like Final Fantasy, in that you have party members that sometimes you can choose, you can switch them in and out, right. and all of the party members have specific things that they do. Um, I mean, there's there's a couple that you kind of have to constantly have like there's like the main character guy um but uh but i find the turn-based gameplay really fun because it's sort of strategic in a way you know like you oh, yeah you you have to know which character does what and which one's your healer and which you know all that kind of fun stuff which is yeah. great if you're good at strategy games i am good at strategy games. <laughs> i'm not <laughs> no, <me> <laughs> not good <laughs> When did this I game lost come that out? game of Mario Party. Oh god! <laughs> um, it must have come out for the first time when I was about twelve or thirteen. Oh. So around the, around the new millennium, I would so imagine. This is a game that you've like played through. And oh, multiple times. You just you just keep playing it. I just and it's love still it. Fun. Yeah, it's still fun. Yeah, yeah no, oh. it's I've I've played it many times, and I will probably play it many more in my life. It's definitely one of those ones where it's like if I have a cold or if I have the flu, mm -hmm. I'm gonna plug in my GameCube and play Skies of Arcadia for like six <laughs> hours. You know. So what in particular appeals to you about this? Like you've played a lot of JRPGs and you've played a bunch of games. Like what in particular is it about Skies of Arcadia that makes it engrossing, or what is it mostly nostalgia? Or do you think that there's some, is there something essential about the game that speaks to you in some way? Um, the story is really great. Okay. And the characters are really great. And like, and the, the premise is great. And the art is beautiful. Like it's, it's a really, like even for a game that's, that's that old, like the, it's, it's very colorful and you're, you're flying through the sky and the levels are amazing. Like there's this one particular level that I love where you're basically playing in an ancient Mayan ruin, like the the dungeon is an ancient Mayan ruin, but it's in the sky, so it's like floating ancient Mayan ruin. It's it's really beautiful. It's it's such a fun game. Oh, that sounds ambitious game. for the time too. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah, into two thousand. Yeah. So yeah, so what's it was thirteen. The animation like. It's a very kind of your your typical JRPG style. It's a bit more cartoony um, because, like you know, fifteen years ago we couldn't like Final Fantasy wasn't quite as sort of realistic and terrible as it is now. Um, <laughs> so it's got kind of a, of a more more cartoony vibe, but it looks very anime ish. Yeah. Like it's you know the characters got big eyes and crazy hair and you know it's, it's, but it's really really cool. I cool have one game. more question. I hope I'm not the only one wondering this. What is the J in JRPG? <laughs> Thank oh, you. Yeah. I was also wondering that. <laughs> I a, made an definitely assumption. Definitely not the only one. <laughs> uh, it's a Japanese RPG. Uh, JRPGs okay, are typically okay. Japanese games. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's like a real um, generic quality to them. Like they're very distinct from a Western style of role-playing game. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's certain conventions that you always find in Japanese role-playing games. Like uh, the turn-based combat is one. The distinction mm -hmm. between an overland map and a combat map. Um, like the particular way that moves are structured and in general the kind of structures of the game are very 
there's a, a real like genre to it. You can see the same sorts of tropes being deployed. Whereas in Western RPGs, they're all over the map, but there's a very different sort of mm -hmm. approach, much more classic Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. I think of things like Baldur's Gate, more real-time combat. Um, yeah, much more, generally much more focused on a single person, although not always. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Whereas RP or JRPGs, a lot of the time, it's very much a party. And you have, I mean, sometimes you've got just one character, but... Yeah, it's 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 kind of a, a genre, really. Like, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Huh. Sounds like fun. <laughs> it is a good game. <laughs> I love that game. So, what about you, Michael? Um, so I'm not a big poetry person. I have trouble reading it. There's a book. Um, it's called Unoya by an author by the name of Christian Bach. It's E U N O I A, which is the shortest word in the English language that has all the vowels in it discarding huh. why because it's questionable anyways each chapter <laughs> <laughs> only uses one vowel so chapter a oh. all the world the only vowel you'll see is a and Whoa. e and so on and they each have a unique theme and a unique story to them and at the back there's a bunch of errata with all the words that don't have vowels and all the words that only have y's and a bunch of other playfulness so it's got a really unique limiting structure to it which i enjoy and from a, the creative side, I think it's quite fun to piece something together where you have very strict um, limits on what you can work with. So my fear about something like that is that it would come out a little gimmicky. It's is a very it's, small book. Yeah, but do you you don't find that it seems gimmicky or like well you're just forcing that because you're only allowed to use this one vowel? Like, does it still flow naturally? Yeah, and I think it's interesting how each chapter has such a distinct uh theme and mood to it that he's developed mm -hmm. so yeah it is gimmicky in that it is very limited it is very structured but that's exactly why he made it that way to see what you can do when you have such a clear um, structure to something mm -hmm. well i think it can be an interesting test um of a writer's capabilities to put those kind of limits on themselves it's surprisingly effective hmm. do you know what the title word means Beautiful thinking. Oh, it's an English nice. word. So, oh. yeah. That's kind of a great definition for a word that also has the distinction of using all of the, the yeah, soft Yeah, sounds. it's very, very yeah. appropriate. Huh. Um, and there is a, I think it was a poem by someone else by the same name or so. And then someone converted that into a painting for the cover. So it's a really very conceptual little book. And they've got uh, a little bit of French poetry in the back as well. Because French has oiseau, so bird is the shortest word. Right. That's another one that I don't remember. But uh, And oiseau, again, has no why. So uh, that answers yep, that, yep. that timeless question. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah, it's a really fun little oh. read. It's oh. easy. It's quick. Has this guy written anything else? I don't know. Um, I think maybe. But uh, he's more of a, I think he's more of an academic than a um, author. Do you remember where is he from Canada? Do you remember? No, I believe he is somewhere Scandinavian. Oh. Maybe. So <laughs> were the poems translated into no, English? No, it's all done in, in oh, English. Okay. Yeah. So if you're not a big poetry guy, how did you come across this? Uh my dad picked it up somewhere when I was living at home and Aww. I always have lots of books around, so I took it when I left. <laughs> oh, so he didn't buy it for you? No. <laughs> <You're> just around? <laughs> nope, no, yeah. I took it later. I just <laughs> some I really of my favorite books it. that way, just because yeah. they were around. Well, there's so yeah, few great. books that I look at or I read and I must have. So that was mm. one of them. Mm. Awesome. Mm. I love that we have some poetry going on. I think yeah, We haven't talked about very many books <laughs> of poetry yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's not... Mm. 
well, I guess it's not explicitly poetry because hmm. um, it is sort of prose style writing, but mm, the structure pretty, to me pretty reads big very poetic. Yeah. Distinction anyway at the best of times these days. Yeah. 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 So yeah. awesome. My favorite hard to find little book. <laughs> so. Okay. So I was going to talk about a book, but I kind of got inspired when Allie was talking. <laughs> and I, I want to talk about a video game now, too. Oh, my goodness. All right. Yeah, because I'm not a huge gamer, but there are a few games that I play that I really like. And there's one that I love, and everybody I know who played it loved it. But, like, 80% of the people I mentioned it to have never heard of it. Hmm. It's called Champions of Norath. And there are actually two of them. The second one is called Champions of Norath Return to Arms. Um, it's an RPG, and it's based on the worlds of EverQuest. Yeah. Okay. And it's for the PlayStation 2. Um, it's a multiplayer game, which I'm really into games where you can play with lots of other people, because I like mm -hmm. video games as a social activity. Mm -hmm. Oh, see, I'm the exact opposite. I like them as a... Yeah. Go away activity. <laughs> yeah. I cannot get into single player games. I just, I need to play with people. Mm. And I actually have a multi tap for my PlayStation 2, so I can play up to four people at a time, mm -hmm. which is a, it's such a good game. So it's an RPG, and it's very Dungeons and Dragons y. And it's, uh, I guess it's like third, like uh, above, you can, you're, you're looking at the person running around on the yeah, ground. Yeah, it's, it's not first person. person yeah. Third person. Okay, yeah. thank you. And um, it's not an entirely open world. You can always go back where you've been, mm -hmm. but the story only lets you go forward uh, as the story evolves, right? Okay. Huh. So you can be, I think in the first game, there's like four or five different character classes you can be, and you can be a man or a woman. And then in the second game, they added two more character classes. And mm. the character that you play in the first game, you can totally transfer over to the second game. Oh, yeah. Nice. You can do that with the Golden Sun games, too. Yeah. Oh. They also, um, when they made the first game, didn't realize that there were some ways of kind of cheating. <laughs> 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 so, like... You in the first game, you can like you get all these jewels and like rings and stuff that make you stronger or more powerful. And then if you save the game and go to import a character and import the same character, you can have one of you drop the stuff and the other one pick it up. Oh. <laughs> and then you either have lots of gems and jewels or you could go to the store and sell it. Yeah. So it's also kind of fun because <laughs> I'm mostly interested in the story part of video yeah. games. So I'm like, please make it easy for me so I can progress through. It's like in, in Pokemon's green or in Pokemon's blue and red, the very first ones, there's this cheat that you can do, which will give you infinite of one specific kind of item. Oh, so yeah, I know yeah. where you're coming from because yeah. I would do that because like, OK, so in Pokemon. There's you get one of these balls. They're called master balls, <laughs> and they capture master anything. Balls. They're called master yeah. balls. You get you get hey, one. <laughs> <laughs> you get you get one. But if you put it in the seventh slot of your inventory and then sail up and down the coast of this particular island until you get to a missing no, which is a kind of Pokemon, once you either defeat the missing no or just like run away from the battle, you'll have infinite m master balls. It's <laughs> amazing. So I know I where you're like coming from with cheating balls. at games. <laughs> yeah. um, I love a porno. <laughs> 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 
But uh, Champions of Norath, like like the game you were talking about, is one of those games that I have played through so many times, mm-hmm. and I never get tired of it. I feel like it's different every time because you play with different people, and they respond mm-hmm. to things differently. And then in the second game, you can choose if you want to be a good guy or a bad guy, and the story changes slightly depending on which you do, so that's also really cool. And I get to be like a tank and just mow through people. I love <laughs> it. I love it so much. It's interesting you mentioned that you really like games for their story but also that you like multiplayer games and that is a tough because usually the way at least i tend to conceive of games is you have a single player game that has a a hefty story and then the multiplayer game usually de-emphasizes the story so like what kinds of games i mean multi massively multiplayer online rpgs tend to have i don't like massively so you don't okay so i'm curious (laughs) about this interesting niche of games that are both multiplayer not massively multiplayer but that also have an involving story like could you name some other titles i'm just uh, like curious. baldur's gate baldur's oh okay. yeah like baldur's right. gate dark alliance is very right. much like right. champions of norath it's okay. multiplayer and it's got a story right and it's very rpg hack and slash and so kind of like co-op games and stuff yeah like yeah that. yeah like i really like even in board games i like cooperative games right i want to feel like it's a bonding opportunity for me and right. the people that i'm playing with not okay. that we're going to be put at odds with each other because i am a sore loser huh okay 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 interesting i just was curious because it seemed like there were a bunch of tensions and i can't imagine that many <laughs> games that would serve no, which probably explains why you don't why game don't game <laughs> taste yeah. Yeah. nothing wrong with but that that's, that's well like i keep trying to find thing. other games that are like champions of norath yeah they're not going to make a third one i think it was blizzard that uh, made it and mm. they've they're really? like no we're not gonna Blizz- and, and it couldn't have been I, blizzard be- it, I think uh, definitely Blizzard, but maybe also really? Square Enix. Okay, maybe? maybe it was in their early days, or this it got licensed w- out to them are, or something. These games are at least I, I want to say like a decade old. Yeah, these games are like probably so. Two thousand four, maybe. Hmm. Like I distinctly remember picking up the second one at Toys R Us in Toronto. But time becomes blurry to me. 2004. Okay. There you go. Wow. And exactly. apparently right. Snowblind Studios were Snowblind. the developers. Uh, Michael, can you just okay. That's why you got it confused okay. with Blizzard. <laughs> you know what? Stay I around and be I'm our resident Googler. I, I need to update my always getting them section. confused with Blizzard. <laughs> well, okay. just because I have a list of games in my head that I know of as Blizzard games. And yeah. so I was like, oh, I didn't know they were involved with EverQuest. when you start the game, there's like this scene of like a little penguin going by. Uh, and there's like snow and ice. Yeah. And so Blizzard is like a big yes. name that I think I just always associate them with that. But um, I have tried other games that are supposed to be like multiplayer, and I'm hoping right. they'll be the same, and they no. just never. Have you, this can't is a weird one. But have you played Left 4 Dead? I have played Left 4 Dead, and I actually kind of like it. Yeah. I don't usually like first-person shooters. No, but it's very much a cooperative game. But where I you're do through. like the cooperative element. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. You've got this whole list of like, nope, not that, not that, <laughs> not that, not that, not that. <laughs> The woman knows what she likes. <laughs> that is why, even though I have like three video game systems and a small collection of games, I don't think of myself as a gamer because my interests are so niche <laughs> in video games. So that's my thing. Champions of Norath, you guys should go play. I almost brought it today. I will come and play <laughs> with your place. You should. Multi-tap. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Moving in our kind of circular motion here, Adina Bronze is up next. All right, so I've got uh, another book to bring and kind of relating um, 
it does have some poetry in it, although it's it's a novel and it's a prose prose narrative. Um, it's called The Book of Flying. It's by Keith Miller. Oh, you've told um, us about this book. Yeah, it's it's near and dear to my heart. When I first read it, I finished it and I said, that is the book that I wish I had written, but now I can't write it because <laughs> someone else has. Um, so he's, uh, so yeah, the author is Keith Miller and it's The Book of Flying and it's the story of Pico the librarian who, so naturally I was uh, drawn to this book, um, who lives in a tower in a library or a library in a tower that no one ever goes to on the sea. And, and the, the prose in this is so beautiful. It's very poetic even when it's, um, even when it's prose. And he is in love with a, a winged girl because in this town there are um, people with wings and people without wings, but he doesn't have them. But he hears about this mystical um, city across the desert called Pom Pom, but it's P-A-U-M, P-A-U-M. <laughs> so it took me a really long time to figure out how that would be pronounced. Um, and so he sets off on this adventure to find his wings. And so it goes in a series of these sort of smaller adventures on this grander quest. Um, he meets bandits in the forest and learns how to uh, be a pickpocket and a jewel thief. And then he um, comes to a bridge guarded by a minotaur who cooks amazingly exquisite meals, mm. but has to fight anyone who tries to cross the bridge. So he's always trying to persuade people like not to do it because he doesn't want to fight them. Oh. And then he uh, comes to a city um, very much like Vancouver because it rains a lot <laughs> <laughs> and but it's and it's the first city or town that he's come to that um, has other readers like there's a huge book sellers trade there and so he meets other people whose passion is is words and is reading um, and each of these places he you know meets new people they're, they're great interesting characters he moves on um, and, but but then he has to leave them and move on. And it's all about, and he's a poet, so it's interspersed with his um, verses. And it's so it's very much about the beauty of words and about um, that intersection between people and words and literature. Um, it's very much like a book person's book, um, but with like a beautiful, fantastical, almost in some ways medieval setting like it's not medieval in sort of knights and castles and that sort of thing but the idea in medieval stories where you would go off into the forest to find adventure and you know you would just come across hermits and dragons and all sorts of crazy stuff just in this wild adventure forest it kind of has that same vibe of just like going off into the great unknown into the wilderness into the mystery and and coming across all these interesting um people and creatures and experiences that um you'd never even heard of you never even knew existed like we're just completely out of the um out of the ordinary um, do you know what age group this was directed at it's in some ways feels sort of teen or ya yeah. but there's definitely some very like adult parts like mm -hmm. there's sex in this book um yeah warning <laughs> warning warning um so Teenagers don't have sex. <laughs> no, of course not. Never. <laughs> so I certainly wouldn't say it's like inappropriate or it's not, it's in, it's in no ways vulgar or anything, but it's right. at the same time, it's, I don't think it's directed at, it's not marketed, well, it's hardly marketed at anyone because no one's ever heard of it. But um, if you were to market it, I think you would have to market it at an older mm. um, reader. I, I think I read it in like, 
late teens, like 18 to 20 kind of thing. But that's just when I came across it. Mm -hmm. He's also written um, another book called The Book on Fire, which is not a sequel, but um, is... Um, has a somewhat like has a similar writing style because it's the same author and is set in this sort of um I think it's set in Cairo um and so he does really interesting things with um in a, in a Cairo where the library of Alexandria didn't burn which was in Alexandria oh. but in this book it's in Cairo anyways um <laughs> <laughs> so anyways but it's another very book related um book where one of the characters is this orphan who's been raised in the library and like anyways so but wait is it the same world no it's not it's not the other book doesn't have any of the like fantastical creatures okay. in it um but it's just there are some like thematic similarities uh between the two of them for sure tell me one more time what was mm. the first book called the book of flying the book of the flying, flying is the first one and the book on fire is the second one although is not actually how a how um, significant are the fantastical elements in the Book of Flying? Because it almost sounds like they're kind of secondary, like background to the adventure part of the story. I guess. I mean, it's not. It's not over the top with the fantastical creatures in that way, but it's you're very much in a world where that's just woven into the texture of the environment and. Um, it's not like, I don't know, it's not an anomaly to see these things. I mean, it is because how many minotaurs are there? Mm. There's just the one, but. Um, it almost sounds like it's got that sort of mystical or supernatural realism aspect to yeah. it. Where it's all written very matter-of-factly. Yes, it's fantastical stuff, but it's it's not unusual. Yeah, and I mean, he comes from a town where there are winged people who fly. That is clearly not you know realism mm -hmm. um but it's also sort of his like journey into a, a much more like that's a very bounded world like mm -hmm. they don't know what's beyond the forest like they don't think there is anything beyond the forest so just the fact that he goes like within the world created by the novel a lot of this is really fantastic do you reread re this book often oh god yes <laughs> <laughs> i i mean i love rereading i'm a big rereader i reread a lot so um so I, don't, I wouldn't say I, I sort of reread it every year or like all the time, but there's just sometimes. It's a keeper. Like, oh, it's definitely a keeper. Have you ever given it as a gift? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how did you initially come across it? Um, I came across it in um, the White Dwarf bookstore oh. here. Oh. Yeah. That's such a good store. Um, <laughs> it was just. My uncle, I think, kept that store open. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, he has a, a shelf full of fantasy, like all bought from White Dwarf. Oh, so. yeah. yeah, I was just, I was in there with a friend of mine and we saw this book and she actually bought it because she had money at that time and I didn't um, and read it and then and then I read it shortly thereafter. So it's sort of, it was a joint discovery between my friend and I. Um, but I, as soon as I read it, I had to go out and buy it. Like <laughs> one of the um, few books that I've had to buy in hardcover. <laughs> I try to avoid that, but like Harry yeah. Potter has to be, you know, had to yeah. get immediately. And then like this one, I couldn't wait for, for paperback. I doubt it would have come out in paperback because it um, was such a, like not widely read mm -hmm. book. 
It, that's actually that's a good transition to mine. Actually, not because there's any similarities but be- between the books, but because of the whole like books that are hard to put in a genre are often the ones that end up being these sort of hidden gems because no one knows how to market them (laughs) or describe them to people or you know there's a reason it's hard to learn to do book talks as a librarian enough and it's because you want to break out of those like genre barriers right and my book my books I suppose that I'm that I want to talk about as hidden gems are our Spider Robinson specifically the Calhans Crosstime Saloon series which are not like extremely obscure but they're obscure enough that like nine out of ten people i ask have you heard of spider robinson they say no i only <laughs> know of him through like your email signature yeah i have not heard of him so. anyone who's ever gotten an email from me will have had some exposure to him i've um, heard of him but have not actually read any of them but so maybe, he's you know. he's written other things but these were his first and they're definitely his best by far their most representative of his work the first one is called callahan's cross time saloon and it's this fairly thin book of um, short stories. And it's science fiction, but it's this very specific brand of like 70s comedy hippie science fiction. Okay. <laughs> and um, it's really not, you can't really compare him to anyone else. Like in, in writing style, he's quite similar to Robert Heinlein because he was obsessed with Heinlein when he was a kid and a lot of the style of that writing has rubbed off on him and it's odd because I read Robinson quite early in my life and so when I came around to reading Heinlein I was Uh. like this seems like watered down Spider Robinson and I know that's wrong (laughs) but that's how it feels. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah the first book is short stories and the story it starts with the guy with the eyes is the first story he ever got published. He was working he after spending seven years getting an English literature degree in the 70s Nobody he knows was working like. in the sewers of New York City. Awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. And, uh, and he was reading all of this. You know, he's reading Analog and um, all of these science fiction magazines and, and thinking to himself, I can do better than this, <laughs> which we all do, right? But he actually did. <laughs> so he sent this story into, I think it was Analog. Ben Bova was the, was the publisher back then of Analog. Um, and Boba has been like a champion of Robinson his whole career, which is awesome. And the guy with the eyes is set in this place called Callahan's, which is this bar unlike any other bar. It's this place off the highway on Long Island where it's the kind of place you only find when you really need it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it start, the description of it starts with, you know, inside several heresies. And they're things like it's brightly lit. And the, the chairs of the bar are comfortable armchairs. They're not stools. And mm-hmm. all of the people who come to this place are are each other's family, basically. Uh, he found the place through a friend of his who's a doctor who was the one who pumped his stomach the night he decided to kill himself because his wife and child had died in a car accident that he thought was caused by him doing his own home brake job on his car. Uh, and at the point where the story starts, Jake, the narrator... Um, <clears throat> has been going to this bar for several years through the, the relationships he has with the people at this bar. He's kind of gotten over some of the guilt around that and started to rebuild his life. Comfy cheers. And <laughs> basically, yeah, it's a sci-fi cheers in a lot of ways. <laughs> Although I think it predates cheers because oh, the okay. first stories were written in the 70s. Um, and this first story is the story of an alien who's come to Earth as an advanced scout for this species that basically wants to wipe out all life on the planet and colonize it. And he um, is sitting at the bar, and they slowly start to notice this odd guy sitting at the bar. 
And then the story goes on, and it seems like a regular short story. The sci-fi elements don't come out right away. This kid, Tommy, who becomes a bigger character later on in the books, um, who's a local kid that they all know has uh, been on and off heroin for a long time, comes into the bar, and um, they do this thing at Callahan's where you can either buy a drink for a buck, it's the 70s, <laughs> and at the end, take 50 cents out of the box at the end of the bar, or you can buy a drink for a buck, and instead of taking your change, walk up to the fireplace, throw your glass into the fireplace, and make a toast about something that's eating at you. <laughs> and so Tommy walks up and goes, to smack. And the story becomes the story of sort of him as a young man in the 70s in New York who can't find work and all of them kind of talking to him about this. And it's a really sort of moving passage just as a regular story. And then as the story unfolds, this guy sitting at the bar reveals to them who he is mm. and says, I've seen all kinds of things on your planet so far, but I hadn't seen this. I didn't know that you had love, <laughs> right? Aww. Which is so corny. But, but he sees these people <laughs> together in this unusual setting with these unusual relationships they have with each other and he decides he can't do it. And he essentially explains to them without explaining to them how to knock him unconscious so he can't send messages back to his overlords. Oh, uh, he introduces himself to the bartender, Callahan, as Mickey Finn, which is... <laughs> an indication of like it'll take five Mickeys, <laughs> basically, ah. <laughs> to power him down. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, and they they go through this whole scenario of like, what do we do here? Like, do we murder this guy so that we can save the planet? And as a collective group, this is your first introduction to these characters who then go on to star in like nine more novels. They decide that they're going to go home and kiss their wives and their kids because they can't bring themselves to just murder this guy in cold blood until this, the Mickey Finn thing comes out and it turns out you know, there's, there's, a, there's a way around this. So this is um, like an emotional roller coaster of a story. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And that's the first story. That's what introduces wow. you to Jake and these guys and women mm -hmm. and gay guys and transgender people. And it's just it's this whole crew of people. And so that's the first story. Mm -hmm. But after that, there are all kinds of other short stories. There are novels. There's, I think, six novels in the series. And... It slowly comes out that like Callahan, who runs this bar, who set it up in the first place, isn't quite what he seems either. <laughs> um, Callahan's Secret, I think, is the third book. <laughs> and uh, you learn more about him and mm -hmm. sort of how he brought these people together. And slowly they become this sort of hodgepodge group of like long hairs who end up on several occasions saving the universe <laughs> in various ways. Um, then my favorite of the whole series is I think the sixth or seventh is called Callahan's Key. And they, for various reasons, can't run a bar in Long Island anymore. And this sort of <laughs> weird extended family around Jake um, and his wife and his child by that point decide that they're all going to pick up and buy this fleet of old school buses from the Long Island School District, renovate them, and move with all their shit to um, Key West. <laughs> and they drive all the way down the eastern side of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Extended there's a, you know, trip. universe in peril plot as well. But a lot of it is just there, like, this group of hippie sci-fi fans driving mm -hmm. down the coast in this fleet of buses. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. It's like you're one of them, you know? I almost get a bit of a Douglas Adams... 
tinge when you're talking a little bit. It's not as silly as Douglas yeah. Adams. Like Douglas Adams yeah. meets Heinlein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's so weird, much heart yeah. in these books that yeah. it's just, I don't know. I think if I'd encountered them as an adult, I probably would have been very cynical about them. Huh. Like, I didn't know that you, you had love, right, right? But I found them when I was, like, 16. And it was just perfect timing. And I think a lot of my, like, values, a lot of my liberal hippie values come from having read those books at such a young age, for sure. The first one, the one with the blue spine up there near you, Michael, I actually um, took out and then never returned <gasps> to my oh. high school library. Oh, girl. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how I found it. I was wandering through my high school library looking for science fiction to so read. So do we now have two uh, admissions of book, book theft? theft? <laughs> Podcast? Is there technically like uh, like $5,000 fine accrued to that book at this point? Something like that? I doubt how Sound Secondary keeps those kinds of yeah. records. <laughs> I understand they don't keep the records, but like technically speaking, Technically. Like, you know, according to the yeah. letter of the law, so to speak. It's all worth it. Yeah, yeah worth every penny. <laughs> Sam, I have read these books, mm -hmm. and you did not mention my favorite part of these books, what? which is the ridiculous... Puns. Oh, the puns. Yeah. Well, the that's the thing. Puns. I got into oh, telling dear. Mickey's story and I got to the sort of the very like impactful sad parts. And really, they're so funny, too. Yeah. It's every they're very funny every Tuesday at Callahan's is pun day. Mm -hmm. And there are these ridiculously oh, elaborate pun contests. Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, these books were made for people you, who like puns. If you can't stand the keech, get out of the hitching. Uh. It only stands to reason. There's and there's elaborate stories behind. It. It's, it's great. And also Callahan's key, the one I was talking about, which is my favorite. It starts because the plot, the universe and peril part of the plot, is very tied in with like the Star Wars program because mm -hmm. it's like in the late '80s. Every chapter starts with a quote from Dan Quayle, and it's it's a <laughs> it's a very George W. Bush esque like just getting it wrong sort of quote oh, <laughs> from <man>. Dan Quayle. <laughs> Have you read any of his other stuff? Robert I don't Spider like Robinson. it as much. No. Did you read the series he wrote with his wife? I read some of it. Yeah, the star dancer. Yeah, yeah. I kind of blocked it because I really didn't like it. Yeah. Really didn't. Yeah, no, his standalones are nowhere near as good. Also, um, it's interesting, the relationship with Heinlein. Spider went on to finish some of Heinlein's books. Like, he ended up, for some reason, being able to build this relationship with Virginia Heinlein, which mm. a lot of other writers were not able to do, and ended up being given these manuscripts. So Variable Star, which is um, one of Spider Robinson's books, it's actually Spider Robinson and Robert Heinlein, even though Heinlein had been dead for a long time by the time it came out, because he took the manuscripts and finished them. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's my hidden gem. So I was I kept struggling in my head about what I was going to talk about. There's lots of obscure things I could talk about, like early 20th century weird fiction and things like that. Um, <laughs> but I'm like some of it, I'm honestly not sure whether I can, in all good faith, recommend it. Like it's it's of interest to people who like me doing research or who really really like that genre. But it might not. It's not like the sort of person where I feel oh everyone should really read this, but they don't. Um, so wh what I'm going to talk about is um, the Leoness series by Jack Vance. Um, some people know Vance, but he's not nearly as widely read as he should be. Mm -hmm. um, and he's often out of print, which is tragic, you know, compared to someone like, I don't know, Asimov or 
Tolkien. Uh, I think he's every bit the equal of these sorts of authors. And he's incredibly prolific. I think he wrote something like 80 novels or something yeah. insane like that. Um, and he lived a long time. He just recently passed away. But Leoness is probably the high point for me. Um, and it's an interesting series. There are three of them. Uh, Saldron's Garden, The Green Pearl, and Maduke. Um, the interesting in that most of what he wrote was set in a uh, sort of fictitious science fiction universe called The Guy in Reach, which is, um, you know, a series of planets in a sort of loose political confederation. Um, but Leoness is set on Earth specifically, and it's very much a straight fantasy novel. I was actually curious if you'd read The Medina because they are totally up your street when you were describing uh, The Book of Flying uh, and talking about like medieval romance. No, I haven't. I've come across the name, like Jack mm -hmm. Vance rings a, rings a bell for me, but I definitely haven't picked them up. Right. Well, the premise of the books, it's sort of an alternate history, but there's in medieval legend and folklore and stuff, there's supposed to be this place called Leoness. Um, and it comes up a lot of the time in reference to various Arthurian uh, tales. But Vance imagines Leoness as an island sort of close to Britain, um, and France, like just um, west of them. Um, and the idea is that it sinks into the sea, like Atlantis, uh, some at some point you know, in the medieval period. Um, so all of the um, sort of nations and kingdoms and things on the island are all kind of quasi-Celtic, basically. These various versions of, you know, th they're Irish people and Scottish people, but then also made up Celtic groups. And then there's also this strange sort of fascistic Viking civilization. They're, they're kind of like Nazis and kind of like Vikings simultaneously, um, who are sort of the main uh, political bad guys. But the, the books are written in a sort of Arthurian style, but they're not actually about Arthur and the knights, but they, um, the round table shows up, makes a cameo, and there are various individuals like wizards and knights that are obviously based off things from Arthurian myth. And there's generally a kind of that weird meandering pastiche episodic quality you find in Arthurian romance where something happens and it's this weird little story and then we go off and then something else happens. And, and they're entirely unrelated. They're entirely they just happen unrelated. to happen consecutively. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's magic and fairies and things like that involved as well. Um, yeah, like for example, I think my favorite section of the books is a bit where um, what the, one of the main characters named Drun um, he's the son of uh, two other characters, but he's been raised in a fairy she. So um, he has aged much more rapidly than um, other people around. So he, even though he was born only a few years ago, he's nearly of an age with his father at this point. So he's emerged from the fairy she into real time. Um, and he's wandering through the central forest that occupies the middle part of the island and encounters all these bizarre ogres and trolls and things eating small children. But then, like, there's a whole series of them in which he defeats them through these, like, various uh, trickeries and, and things like that. And it just fe feels like something out of, um, like, uh, Mallory or something like that. But, um, you know, obviously written in the middle of the 20th century instead. And the style of them is just absolutely gorgeous um, and incredibly distinctive, often imitated, but rarely successfully. It's a sort of weird, stilted Baroque style um, that he's, he's known for, particularly in his dialogue. So yeah, I heartily recommend them. And you were saying earlier too that he's sort of a 
a fantasy writer's fantasy writer. Like there are yeah. a lot of more prominent writers who talk yeah. about him. Yeah, well, particularly George R. R. Martin, um, who mm. of course everyone and their dog now knows, um, <laughs> and you see people reading all the time, um, has mentioned like Jack Vance as his um, really his main influence. I mm. think uh, he talks about Vance as the central influence on him and in fact if you read early martin novels um particularly um the dying of the light um and generally martin's science fiction it feels a little bit like someone trying to be jack vance <laughs> like he's he's he, he's writing in a style that's very much like vance's style and mm. like the sort of the sorts of scenarios that he thinks up are very much like Jack Vance. Like, I feel like you could say the same thing about what I was just talking about. Yeah. If you did it in the proper order, Early Robinson probably feels like he's trying to be right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Jan Jack Van Vance um, writes a series called The Dying Earth set in a far future Earth that's mostly been emptied. And um, it's, it's n I wouldn't call it post-apocalyptic because it's not like there's been some single cataclysm that has reduced people to um, desperation. It's just like a million years in the future or something, or even more than that. And if you look at some Martin stuff, there's like, for example, Dying of the Light is about worlds that are about to be consumed mm. by, or they're about to drift off into the uh, the void or something like that and become cold. So it's very, he's very much influenced by him. And there's other authors that mention Vance all the time. China Mievel mentions uh, mm. Vance quite a bit and um, people like that. Is yeah. the prose, I'm thinking like as someone who doesn't read a lot of fantasy, I've read the first of Martin's uh, yeah, Game mm -hmm. of Thrones books and I appreciated how straightforward the prose was. Like is Vance sort of along those lines as well? Um, or not as much? I would say he's more ornate, hmm. but he's... Almost Tolkien-esque. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not a bad way of describing it. Although there's something about Tolkien's language at times. I mean, Michael Moorcock talks about this with respect to Tolkien, that there's something... Um, sort of comforting in the way Tolkien writes. Moorcock yeah. has an essay called Epic Pooh where he talks about... Um, Wait, what? what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Pooh with an H, as in a Pooh Bear, you know? Right, um, where he right. talks about how if you open Sorry, to any guess. random page of Lord of the Rings, it kind of sounds like, except maybe the parts with Shelob or something, it sort of sounds like uh, Winnie the Pooh story, <laughs> the style. You um, can totally see the bits with Tom Bombadil starting with Deep in the Hundred yeah. Acre Woods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a kind of sleepy quality to some of Tolkien. I think actually there are bits of Tolkien that he quite gets away from that, particularly in the Silmarillion. Tolkien has a very different style. But is there maybe um, Tolkien You know, famously is drawing from trying to draw from a very English heritage, so yeah. Old English, and he was also really into like Norse um, yes. and Icelandic mythologies. Yeah. Whereas um, if you're comparing it to Arthurian legends, that's actually kind of a different thing that has a lot of French yeah. and um, like and Southern French influence, which Tolkien was also famously kind of against, yeah. um, but which in Mallory is quite present as well. So Vance is kind of going for more like that kind of medieval like yeah. romance quote unquote yes. which Tolkien was not doing a like medieval romance he, he was, was definitely doing not yeah more of a northern he European was epic yeah I, I was going to say Anglo-Saxon epic yeah or Germanic Norse epic was what Tolkien's going for which is not there in in Vance Vance is much more kind of decadent I guess and um, you know the language in that he uses for Leonesse is the same as the language in the Guy in Reach. He's d it's it's not like he modulates his style at all. Um, it's a very weird 
um, style. He knows a lot of obscure words that he'll just decide to throw in um, in a very deliberately archaic way. And he's um, not concerned at all with historical accuracy, um, even remotely. So, um, which is something to contrast with something like George R. R. Martin, who, even though it's a completely invented world, it feels quite um, gritty and realistic. Um, whereas the world that Mar or that um, Vance paints is like, <sighs> there's elements that feel like something out of the Dark Ages, but then there's things that feel much more like something out of the Renaissance, and then thrown in with completely made-up fantasy stuff. When so. was when was he um, writing? Like, was this part of the sort of Tolkien Lewis era of fantasy? I won't say revival because that's not quite true, but they did sort of reintroduce yeah. this kind modernization. of modernization. Yeah, yeah. Um, or was it later? Kind or? of. Um, he, I mean, he wrote for most of the twentieth century. Really, okay. <laughs> he was. I th I think he was just shy of a hundred when he died. He was really wow. old, and he was writing for most of his life. So he, he's, it, he's written across the decades and was writing pretty much up until he died. He, was, um, he went blind, and so he had to you know, use various software and things like that to um, help him write. I'm not sure when Leoness actually came out, but it later, later than Tolkien and things like that, but not hugely later, you know, not in the 90s or something like that. Right, so vaguely mid-20th century. Yeah, mid to later 20th century. Um, Dying Earth was the first set, and then he wrote a, a lot of Guy and Reed stuff and Leoness, and then more and more. And he wrote some standalone novels as well. Oh, are we finding out the exact? I feel the need to point out at this point that I don't have an English degree. I so know, <laughs> right? This is mad literary. Yeah, this is crazy. Way beyond my scope. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm gonna be quiet. <laughs> Melody and I are the odd ones out here. I think. Well, this is how I kind of felt when the video game talk was happening, and I was just like, I'll just sit and be quiet. Well, I yeah. do. I have me too. It's, it's our turn. Okay. So, uh, that's fair. Leoness actually came out in '83. It's it's kind of hard to take to keep track of Vance because his style is so consistent throughout. Um, that like late Vance feels a lot like early Vance, right. and they're, since they're all across the 20th century, I kind of forget what gets written when. But yeah, Leoness is 83. Okay. Um, so a little bit later. Yeah. I have a non-literary question. Sure. Um, as one of the people who has never heard of Jack Vance, yeah. is it is it hard to find his works? Mm, like if I go to Book of. Warehouse or the yeah, you're never Vancouver Public Library. Maybe the Vancouver Public Library, the Book Warehouse. Um, Pretty much no. Uh, chapters, maybe, just maybe, but probably not. Oh, um, so it's not yeah. even that like people aren't telling me, this guy's so great. It's that if I go to the bookstore and I browse the books, I probably yeah. won't even see He's him He's out of print, basically, in large part. But you can track them down pretty easily. Like There's lots. I'm sure Amazon has... Multiple copies. That's the other thing about these like genre-bending authors, right? Like I'm thinking about Robinson, yeah. and he's not... It's mostly not out of print, but you're going to find maybe one of his books in chapters, and it's probably going to be Variable Star because it's got Highland's name on it, too. And there are several of his standalone books of short stories that are, like, impossible to find. I gave mm. away a copy of By Any Other Name, and... Oh, no. Uh, I shouldn't have done it. Oh, I <laughs> seem to remember getting you a couple for Christmas one year from, like, some weird Amazon vendor. Yeah, I think that was the end of... The Cadwall Chronicles, which is another interesting series about a planet that is entirely made as a nature preserve. So the only people allowed on it are naturalists, except then, of course, some um, like runaway servants and criminals 
uh, form a little town and start a breeding population and want to settle the planet. Um, but then generations later, there's all sorts of debates about like, well, these are kind of now become an oppressed people because uh, you know there are various laws restricting what they can and can't do. But then there's this noble goal of like conservation that runs anyway. Huh. That was the end of that's, that's a completely different so series. as well. A so little bit, yeah. Have you now read all of Vance's works? No, that would take a uh, not not me. My uncle has, but oh. uh, no, I've read a lot of them. Probably a couple dozen, but what's, what's there's so many. Because you? you seem to really like him. Um, well, A, time, B, money. Um, you you got to track them down, and they're not easy to find. So I'd need to go on a hunt to find all of them. Mm -hmm. um, frankly, Surely you could get it through interlibrary loan. Some of them, yeah. I could start. <laughs> but, you know, it would take, it would take legwork, basically. Um, you you would need to track them down and some. No, that's what interlibrary loan does for well, you. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I would need to like first of all, I need to find. I'm sure I could, but you'd find a j advanced bibliography, and then you'd need to go through and find okay, which are where mm. and all that kind of thing. I mean, mm. I I am always whenever I'm in old bookshops, I mm -hmm. and um, like used bookstores and stuff, I sort of comb through, and if they have a few Vance, I pick them up because they're. Um, Really good. And, you know, he's had a big impact on pop culture in, p in ways people don't know about. You well, look so excited right now. Well, <laughs> it's exciting also, stuff. I was also just going to say, sometimes it's nice with these authors that have huge, long bibliographies not to read them all at once, but to have them as, like, an ongoing quest yes. at bookstores. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, that yeah. you didn't systematically go through them, but you're always sort of hoping that today will be the serendipitous discovery of one you, you haven't read. You like, that's one. really enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like we were talking about giving things away right like i think we were asking if you gave um the book of flying as a gift and that's often what i'll do is i'll have a few copies of favorite books like the robinson books or um good omens or whatever and i'll give them away and then i'll have to find more but it's yeah. sort of a, you know then i get to browse used bookstores and see what i can find right? yeah i think the only one i was thinking about it in chapters i think they often sell the dying earth still because it's sort of his best known but i was going to say one thing that some people know him through is the spell system in Dungeons and Dragons is Jack Vance's spell system. What? Yeah, what? yeah. It's huh. just that is ex like the the mode of spell casting where you memorize a spell from a spell book and then you cast that spell and it disappears from your head. He made that up. Okay, now I'm impressed. That's <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and so obviously, yeah. like Gygax and those guys were yeah. reading Vance. Well, Gygax has a little thing that he put out when he published the first D&D called um, Appendix N. So there were all these different appendices to Dungeons and & Dragons, and Appendix N was his list of influences. Hmm. Um, he lists Tolkien, although Gygax was very... I think he had what Harold Bloom would call an anxiety of influence. Like, he... Uh, <laughs> He was very eager to distance himself from Tolkien. Some mm -hmm. say for legal reasons. He was worried that Tolkien's estate mm -hmm. or Tolkien himself would get uh, crotchety. Um, but uh, he mentions Tolkien, but also Robert Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, um, Fritz Leiber, and uh, Jack Vance um, as like major influences. And you can definitely see bits of Vance of play in the way D&D structures itself. Literary high five for dropping Harold Bloom into the conversation. <laughs> well, some people would not high five me for that. Let me I tell know. You. I was told that by an English TA once that if you walk into any random English department anywhere in the world and say the name Harold Bloom, you they'll either like high five you or spit on you. Yeah. <laughs> Harold Bloom. I, is I a just want the figure. internet to know that they actually just high five. <laughs> 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 it was pretty cute. 
I guess those are our hidden gems. Yeah. I'm excited oh, I, to I, find some fans now. I was originally going to talk about a video game. I mm. won't really talk about it because two other people have talked about video games. But I'll mention it. The game Realms of the Haunting is really cool and mm. old and weird. And everyone should go and play is it. Is this another one of your, like, gives you nightmares games? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, it, it's old. It's, <laughs> it's super old. It's it's from, like, the late 90s or something. Or even earlier. Maybe the mid-90s. You can find <laughs> it on... Super old. On, uh, <laughs> I well, really resent that. Like, uh, in video game years. That's pretty old. Not in people years. But uh, yeah, you can get it on good old, good old games for like a couple bucks, probably. It's good. I find it interesting that a lot of what we've talked about here is stuff that's like roughly a decade to a decade and a half old, which sort of shows how deeply you're influenced by things in your teen years, mm. right? Or in your 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> or also just that it takes a few years for you to realize whether this is something that's going to stick or not. Because I'm sure there's well, yeah. things, you know, you could be really into something for two or three years, but yeah. then ten years later, you're like, oh yeah, that was a great phase, but like I didn't, it didn't yeah. stick. Does yeah. anyone here? Do you guys know David Eddings, that author? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I used to be really into David Eddings when I was in my teen years, and now I look back and I'm like, why was I really into this guy? <laughs> I used to be really into Stephen King. Oh yeah. And I'm kind of like, oh, I feel like I have outgrown him. Mm. Stephen King's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All over the map. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was a really awesome mind grapes, almost kind of a round table of reader's advisory. So oh, absolutely. hopefully yeah. everyone will uh, go out and grab these things. And uh, we'll <laughs> definitely if you're if you're listening to this through iTunes uh, on our website, sslibrarianship.com, we do rather extensive uh, notes on our mm -hmm. on our episodes. So we will link out to all of these things. Definitely. Well, that's our show for this week. That was so fun. That was a wicked fun. So the first thing we have, though, is we're just going to toss it over to Michael again real quick for a quick apologia. Um, I made a mistake earlier. The author of Hunoya is from Toronto, and he's very clearly claimed so, not from Scandinavia somewhere. My bad. <laughs> and the complete text of Hunoya is available online through his publisher. Nice. They can both be pretty cold. It's an understandable error <laughs> <laughs> well that's all we've got going on this week uh we're 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 inching closer and closer to 250 followers on tumblr which uh -huh. is always really exciting and we have hit the 80 mark on twitter let's get that up guys because we've we have a number for you that we're going to investigate about how many subscribers we actually have on this podcast. But Yes, we'll have more stats for you soon. If that stat is correct, then more of you should be following us on Twitter at SS Librarianship <laughs> because we are so much fun. <laughs> and as always, you can get all the show notes and all your other SS Librarianship needs at sslibrarianship.com. Uh, drop us a line, send us an email if you have any ideas for episodes or comments on ones we've done so far. Absolutely. And if there's any particular reason why you need to get in touch with us particularly, Sam is on Twitter at Spinning Sam. And Allie is at Bulbasauria. <laughs> uh, and I guess all that's left is to thank Jonathan Colton, as usual, for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. One of my favorites. I'm sure it's one of yours by now, too. It is a great one. So everyone, be happy, be healthy, be safe. And uh, let's all enjoy the rest of the winter, because spring is just around the corner. I can feel it. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, we'll just catch you on the proverbial flip side.
I'm Melanie Cassidy, and I'm a banana. I'm Adina Bronze, and I'm off to the morning town to find my wings. <laughs>